You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Uh, what do I hope to achieve in this session? Well, the first thing is to um, give a general background into roughly where university rankings, particularly global university rankings, are at. And think about some of their strengths and some of their weaknesses. Inevitably, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about how ours is put together. Uh, but then I'm going to look at some data. Here we go. I'm going to look at some data from our ranking and see what that can tell us about the state of higher education in Australia and perhaps in some other parts of the world. And then finally, uh, if time allows, I'm going to talk to you about a project that we recently did in the US and how that might indicate another direction for rankings and actually potentially some additional value that rankings can provide. As is traditional, though, we have to have a brag sheet. This is the timeline of Times Higher Education. It was founded in 1971 as part of the Times newspaper in London. Um, and in 2004, together with um, some people we no longer talk about, QS, we produced our first world university ranking. It had 200 universities on it. Um, and <coughs> I'm going to be frank with you, it was probably put together simply because if you're in journalism, putting lists in a newspaper is a great idea. A list in the newspaper, for example, I don't know, um, top 50 data scientists in the UK. People come to your newspaper to read your newspaper, to agree with lists, disagree with lists, wonder why they're not on the list or why they're not higher up, etc. So lists are great. They're a great way for people to, um, to understand data. And it drove, um, it drove quite considerable readership. And inevitably with that, the list itself came to become more and more important. And as it became more important, the uh, original decisions about how it's put together seemed to be less and less plausible. And so, um, in, oh, by the way, in 2005, um, uh, someone who's relatively local to here, if you heard of him, you probably haven't, so Mr. Murdoch, <laughs> he decided that uh, we weren't making enough money for him, so he kicked us out the door. Um, and we became an independent organisation. We're still independent, although we have the time saying we're not part of News Corp. Uh, and in 2010, we actually spent a lot of time thinking about how we could make our methodology stronger. We split from QS uh, and worked with a new partner, Thomson Reuters. Thomson Reuters provided the bibliometric data, uh, but they also provided all of the analysis and all of the work to produce the rankings. Times Higher Education still acted primarily as a publisher. And that made life quite interesting. If, for example, uh, the wonderful Monash University came to us and said, why have you ranked us X? Our answer was, because hmm? that's where you should be. Which wasn't very satisfying to either party. So in 2000, and, well, late 2014, actually, we made the decision to take the production of the rankings in-house so that we controlled the process as far as was possible. So now if someone comes and asks us why we ranked in a certain position, we can actually explain the data to them. And that was a fairly major move for us. That has been part of our transition from fundamentally being a print magazine focused on the worldwide higher education sector to also having a data business and being focused on what the data can tell us. So, I promised you on the, on the title, what's the best university in the world? Before I, um, before I actually go to this, um, I'm going to make the audience work a little bit. Uh, any ideas what the best university in the world is? Please feel free to shout out. We've had a couple of Harvards there. Anything else? Oxford. Oh, Oxford. 
someone reads us. Anything else? Harvard, Oxford, MIT. Depends. Interesting. Where is Depends based? <laughs> I walked into that one, didn't I? I think I heard of Caltech, etc. Well, it depends who you listen to. So if you go to US News, um, who are uh, an organization in the US who rank more sort of things fridges, they also rank universities. <laughs> Their view is Harvard is the best university in the world. If you go to our dear friends at QS, they have a slightly different view. They think it's MIT. If we go to the Shanghai Zhao Tong uh, ranking, back to Harvard. If you go to the CWRU ranking, which is actually one person sitting in Saudi Arabia, but never mind, <laughs> the answer is still Harvard. If you go to FIFA, they say it's Argentina. <laughs> Not technically a university, but FIFA probably do something which is important. Um, if you go to Webometrics, they say Harvard, and they also think Harvard has won two World Cups. And finally, if you look at us, we're slightly different. We say Oxford. Now, we used to say Caltech, we said Caltech for about five years, and this year, for the first time, Oxford um, leaped to the top, which was uh, interesting and not at all what I was expecting. I, if I was going to put a bet on it, I think Caltech will be back top next year. And if you ask me at the end, I might tell you why I think that will be the case. But as you can see, although there's some consistency, Harvard clearly the number one uh, in terms of overall um, rankings, there's also some differences. Why are there differences? Well, the answer is because at the end of the day, there isn't an absolute answer. I come from the world of data science. I've been used to building predictive models. And the great thing about building predictive models is that I use historical data to do it. So I use some historical data, I build a model, I test it against the actual results. Here, there are no actual results I can test against. Any list that anyone in this room comes up with could be just as good, just as valid, as any list produced by anyone else. And um, that's particularly uh, interesting because it means that although there isn't a right answer, there are certainly many wrong answers. If, for example, I was to say that, uh, and I have nothing against this fine institution, but London Metropolitan University was the best university in the world, people would want to know why on earth I thought London Met was the best university in the world. It may not even be the best university in East London. So there is a wrong answer as well as right answers. So why are the differences? Firstly, why have you at all then if there's all this difference? Well, the first thing is that education is global. It really is a global business. Particularly in Australia, where you have such a significant number of international students supporting your education sector. Think about it, you have what, 35 universities? And your population is, someone update me on the, on the latest Australian population numbers. 24 million. 24 million. That's a high number of universities, given the size. Uh, we're in the UK, we're about the same position. We've got about 150 universities on 60 million odd adults. So that kind of size and sector is hard to maintain without external funding. It's always interesting, me, by the way, people say, you know, I remember the days when education was free. Education has never been free. The question has always been who has been paying for education. And that's a slightly different matter. Anyway, education is global, but information is fundamentally local. If you think about when students are making decisions about universities, what are the information sources available to them? If you're in your own country, there are lots. There's press, television, but more importantly, there are the networks of friends and family you have who will give you insight into what they expect. They may be wrong, but you have that informational uh, reach. As soon as you go outside your own country, 
that network disappears. What information do you have? Well, you could say that actually universities themselves provide information. And they do. Well, they do it in a limited fashion. And frankly, when, once you've read about 10 university mission statements, you've pretty much read all of them. Pretty much all universities want to be global, leading, international. They put teaching at the top, although they also put research at the top. Um, you read them, there's a lot of consistency there. It's very challenging to find any real differentiation there. Universities are amongst the last great public institutions to actually be held to public account. We have traditionally assumed that universities have a sacred duty, and they take that sacred duty, they'd be the guardians of that duty, the like guardians of that responsibility. Um, that's no longer really something that happens in most public institutions. Health is open to scrutiny. Politicians are open to scrutiny. Even the military are open to scrutiny. Universities are in this opposition that they're semi-independent. And as a result, they've had less scrutiny on a global scale than many other public institutions. The third thing I'd say is that rankings can provide data that provides useful insight, particularly when you're looking across those international boundaries. If you look just within Australia, you have data sets, you have data that helps you understand different institutions. When you look outside Australia, it becomes much more challenging. How do you get comparable information? Um, if you look in the UK, for example, we have PISA. If you look to the US, they have iPads. But outside those data sources, there are precious few examples in the world of data about universities being gathered centrally and opened up. It's very surprising how we were told uh, when we were in Japan, data on Japanese universities is gathered by their government once every seven years. And their average government lasts about three years. It puts them in an interesting position that means that you have a situation you can put through an education policy and have no idea or care about what happens to it because you'll be gone by the time it gets there. And the final thing, back to Pandora's box. It's too late. They're there. Believe me, if we stop publishing this tomorrow, someone else will come along and publish another one. And probably another one. They will probably anyway. Um, once rankings are out there, there's not much you can do about it in terms of turning the clock back. What you can do, however, is try and make sure that rankings are as accurate and as useful as possible. So why the difference? Why, are they, uh, why do the rankings produce different results? Well, the first answer is pretty obvious. They have different methodologies. We have different ways of calculating what the best university is. We also have different data sets. Now, ourselves at QS, we both use uh, Elsevier's bibliometrics data, but there is Thomson Reuters as well. Some, uh, such as Webmetrics, use a very different way of analysing what's out there. They use social media. Uh, we collect data directly from universities, others don't. But the data differs, and as we've seen, changing data sets, even if you kept everything else the same, could have a significant impact on the outcome. But also we have different ideas of what a world-class university might be. Here's the first cheat sheet. Three of the leading methodologies, um, and guarantee ours is right, uh, QS and Shanghai would believe are correct, uh, if they aren't, apologies to the, uh, to the people involved, but I do highlight the major differences. So, what do we see? Well, in most of them we have some measure of uh, research output in terms of citations. So for Times Higher Education, we use Citation Impact. QS have Citation for Faculty. Um, Shanghai use Hindsight of Researchers, Papers in Science, Citation Index. And there are some subtle differences there. 
Uh, I used to have a, a slide but, um, which I made up by looking at the English Premier League. And I looked at the top, well, I looked at the entire league based on just the top 20% of games, those with five or more goals, and all the games. And frankly, I like the one with just the top 20% of games in much more because Newcastle did far better than that. Um, obviously, this year I'm not going to show the tables because uh, Newcastle are no longer in the Premier League. Um, but nevertheless, it shows that actually looking at the top papers rather than all the papers can give you a very different insight into what's going on. It isn't that one approach is wrong and the other is right, they are just different. What else do we see? Well, some of the interesting things about Shanghai are that many of the features in the Shanghai index will change very, very slowly. So you know, the number of Nobel Prize winners in your faculty is not the kind of thing that jumps horrendously. It tends to be fairly slowly changing. Unless you suddenly come into a huge amount of money and decide to go on a recruiting spree, you're not going to get much change there. Um, and so what we tend to see is Shanghai is the most stable. Uh, QS and ourselves are much more similar. We have more in what we call the teaching environment area than they do. Um, they, on the other hand, have information on the employer reputation. So there are differences. But what are the similarities? Well, the first similarity should be fairly obvious. All of them are focused at research-intensive universities. If your primary mission of your university is teaching, you probably will never end up in any of these lists. And it doesn't make you a worse university, it just makes you a different university. There is a good reason why international university rankings look at research. Any guesses? Jared, I know you know the answer. The answer is simply that that data is more easily obtained across international boundaries. Citations are international by nature. So we can take those relatively easily. Um, they also tend to be the biggest, wealthiest universities because research costs a lot of money. They also tend to have some level of reputation in them. And reputation is somewhat contentious. People say reputation, well, that's subjective, sure. What value can that have? The reality for anyone who's worked in uh, marketing is that brand is hugely important. It has huge impact on your ability to recruit students, to recruit staff, even to get funding. And so it's important. It may not be fair, but uh, we said the world was fair. And so it's in there. And I'll talk more about reputation later on. We use bibliometrics, which, as I said, are objective-ish. Of course, they're not entirely objective. There are some inbuilt biases in there. At the moment, we're in the position where English is the dominant language in research. That kind of has a snowball effect. Although we take into account uh, papers that are written in languages other than English, the reality is if you publish a paper in English, it is more likely to be cited than if you publish a paper in Japanese. Because there are more English-speaking researchers. Can I ask a very quick question? On the last slide then, so your research and um, teaching environment and things like that, are they weighted the same or is there different weightings amongst those different categories there? So you can see there the, the percentage there reflects the weight. Oh, they add up to yeah, They should do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always a bit worried now. Someone's going to be looking at their phone going, what? They certainly should have to run. <laughs> I have done that on occasions in the past and I've changed one without remembering. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, all these bibliometrics, bibliometrics have a semi objective element to it. And the other thing that's common about them is that they all have a range of about, of about a thousand universities. <coughs> and that seems to be a reasonably natural limit at the moment. 
Would anyone like to hazard a guess at how many universities there are in the world? 2,300. 2,300? If, if this was physics, I'd say you are in, within the right sort of couple of magnitudes. <laughs> 14,000. 14,000? Any higher? I feel like I'm in an auction here. Higher? 25,000. 25,000, probably a bit too high. But it's, it seems to be about 23,000. Now, it's actually pretty difficult to establish that because, of course, what is meant by a university varies from country to country. In the US, for example, there are 7,500 universities, but many of those are what are called community colleges who, you, who do provide two years um, associate degrees rather than the four year degrees that we're familiar with. Nevertheless, there are a lot of universities. What we're looking at here, very much the most, uh, the top, the most significant research-focused universities. So a little bit more about our methodology and some of the data we have. For those of you who haven't seen a diagram like this before, this is called a Sankey chart. The thickness of the line here represents the proportion of that element in the final result. So broadly speaking, the thicker something is, the more significant it is in our ranking. If you want to look at a truly fantastic example of a Sankey chart, probably the best that was ever and will ever be done, Minard's Napoleon's March on Moscow, where the thickness of the line is the size of Napoleon's army. You see him leaving Germany on his way to Moscow, very thick line, getting thinner, getting thinner. He gets to Moscow, comes back. By the time he gets back to Germany, it's him and his horse. Um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful diagram well worth checking. This has fewer depths. So, what do we start with? Well, we start with data. We get data from three different sources. We get data from Elsevier's Scopus data set. About a third of our data comes from that, or a third of the value comes from that. We also get data from our reputation server. And finally, we get data from what we call the portal. That is data that's provided to us by universities themselves. So if anyone in this room is part of the team at their university that supply that data, can I offer my sincere thank you to you for putting the work in for doing that. I know it's time consuming and annoying and arduous, but really without you, we couldn't do this work. When we ask for data from universities about their overall um, uh, position of what they're doing, but also in eight discrete subject areas. We'll talk a little bit about those later on. From those three data sources, we produce 13 different metrics. And here you can see that they, the thickness indicates how significant they are. So they range from, I think, the smallest, the international ones, two and a half percent, up to field weighted citations, which is 30%, uh, I think, from recollection. And we then gather those into five broad areas that we then report. So the 13 metrics we produce, we don't publish. What we call the five pillars. We do publish, so if you look up the rank of an institution, say you look at Monash or Melbourne, you will see the scores in each of those pillars. And finally, we blend those to produce a ranking. <coughs> but not everyone can enter. We have criteria. And although our criteria differ from QS and they differ from Shanghai, actually the outcome is probably fairly similar in terms of the universities who will be in scope and those who won't. The first thing is that we require a minimum of 1,000 scholarly papers over a five-year period. Papers mean, in this case, papers, reviews, um, books, and conference proceedings. We used to be very strict about saying we have to have at least 200 per year. We've actually become more flexible around that to allow, particularly for the younger universities who are ramping up their performance, 
to actually fall below that number in one particular year as long as they're over 1,000 uh, in total. And for this year, the data was collected in July 2015. So July 2016, it reflects the data 2011 through 2015 inclusive. So that's the first criteria, 1,000 papers. Why is that important? Well, actually, this comes back to a data issue. We looked, uh, when we were doing some work in Latin America, we actually reduced that ceiling for a Latin America ranking. We reduced it to 500. But what we found was, um, and it's not surprising, that there's a sample effect here. The smaller the number of papers, the more variable the score in this particular metric. And so we saw this markedly between a, um, a small Latin American university who were about 510 papers, and their field-weighted citation impact score varied significantly from year to year. We looked at Sao Paulo University, who produced 24,000 papers over the same period. Their score, there were changes because they were uh, improving their um, performance, but the, the output was smooth. Okay, so that's, if you do data work a lot, that kind of thing is indicative of a sampling challenge, particularly lower numbers. So that's the first criteria, but we have two more. Firstly, or rather secondly by this stage, we're looking for universities that are universal. In other words, they don't just teach one single subject area, they actually have evidence of teaching in several different areas. And also, we need them to do work at the undergraduate level. In previous years, this proved a disadvantage to the French university system, because that's a very different system where you had teaching of undergraduates in one type of university, and then you had specialist research uh, institutions like uh, Paris Tech. However, France has now uh, abandoned the Napoleonic principle. We finally, it's only taken since 1815, uh, but we finally got them to admit they were wrong. They're now merging their universities into super universities. So in Paris, for example, you have uh, Paris Science Lettres, which is going to include Paris Tech, part of the Sorbonne, and so on. And these big new universities are going to have teaching both undergraduate level, and they're going to include the old research institutes. <laughs> How do we go about comparing these very different things, though? So here you can see the 13 different metrics and some of the treatments we put through them. And uh, some of this is going to be unnecessary data science here. I apologize for that. Um, but the first thing to say is that for most of these uh, metrics, we uh, normalize them by something which is going to take into account difference in sizes. We don't think that a ranking that instantly puts the biggest university at the top which, by the way, is a university in Turkey. If you look at student numbers, they have something like 300,000 students. Um, they don't come top, usually. Uh, simply size is not the right thing to be looking at. In fact, our previous uh, top university, Caltech, has somewhere in the region of 2,500 students. It's a very unusual institution. So we uh, make this relative to either staff or the student body size in most cases. We also do a variety of normalizations, because if I'm trying to merge or compare two very different measures, I can't simply average them. That doesn't make sense. Uh, so what I do first is I take usually a z-score. So this is assuming that the data is on a normal distribution. I'll give you a top data science tip here. Data is never in a normal distribution. You see, data in a normal distribution, it's fake data. Um, but anyway, we assume it is for the sake of uh, consistency. And we, we use a variation on a z-score uh, to normalize that. And that broadly means that uh, the score you get represents roughly where you would come in terms of the distribution. Uh, there are two exceptions for reputation scores where we use an exponential normalization because of the nature 
of the amputation data. But for many of the, or what goes PPP first? Who knows what PPP is? Excellent, excellent. Purchasing, uh, purchasing price and purchasing power parity. Different currencies are worth different amounts of money. Uh, the GP pound is worth considerably less than it was in June last year. Um, but the important thing is how much can that pound buy in the UK? And that's really important to us. What we want to make sure is not just on a, you know, a <coughs> equivalent currency basis, but actually in terms of purchasing power, how much money does the university have to use to actually purchase uh, its resource, which is largely staff. Um, and finally, subject weighting. We have subject weighting in here because fundamentally, different subject areas behave differently. They publish at different rates. It is easier to get research money in different subjects. You know, if you're, uh, if you're in mechanical engineering, it's probably easier to persuade Nissan that they might want to invest in your wonderful research than if you do art history unless you're really persuasive at art history. Um, so we actually normalize by subject area, so that we look to say, you know, given your, um, the proportion of your staff in each area, how well are you doing overall? So we take, make attempts to actually take account of some of the obvious challenges there. The final one I'll talk about in terms of normalization is field-weighted citations, because this is a, um, perhaps the most challenging of the metrics to explain. The idea of field-weighted citation impact is to understand how well the university is performing in terms of academic output. How well do other academics rate the research that your university is doing? But as I just hinted, we can't simply take the number of citations you get because that will vary by subject. Again, back to, I'm not picking on art history for any reason, I think it's a fantastic subject. Um, but art history, you tend to have far fewer citations than you do in medical science. In some ways, I'm really quite happy about that. I'd rather that medical science got lots of attention uh, than art history. However, how do I measure? <coughs> uh, there's also a particular problem there in terms of killer water papers. Do we have any high energy physicists in the audience? So that'd be great for me. Um, in that case, I can talk about killer water papers later. But anyway, firstly, how do we actually normalize the subjects? Well, what we do is within Scopus, it's okay. Wasn't the worst thing going on with it. Within Scopus, we actually normalize this at 334 discrete subject levels. So we know uh, from each journal, or in the case of big journals like Nature, we know from each paper, the subject area associated with that particular um, journal or paper. And then we look at the average number of citations in that field. And then we compare the number of citations that your paper received to that average in the field. Uh, so for example, I'm uh, an expert on uh, nanoparapsychology. It's a great new developing field. Um, the average number of citations for nanoparapsychology is 10. My paper got 5, so I score 0.5. Jared, far better researcher than I am, his paper got 20 citations. You can ask him about it later. So he scores 2.0. And then we average that up across the university. Uh, the exception is the kilo author papers. These are a particular pain in my side. Um, this is something that's come out of particularly high energy physics and big science, where rather than having uh, the mean number of authors or the median number of authors on the physics paper outside, or even including high energy physics, is four. In high energy physics, you have papers with 5,500 authors. Okay, it's very challenging to actually 
uh, know what's going on there. So we have a slightly different scheme for counting papers with over a thousand authors. I won't spend any time on it now, but anyone who really wants to, I will take you for the mass later on. Another thing that has changed the ranking though is the change in coverage. In 2004, we had 200 universities. 2010, that went up to 400. 2015, it went up to 800. And this year, it went up to 980. Why not 1,000? Well, because we didn't have 1,000 universities to pass the criteria. Um, and I didn't see any point in artificially stopping to 900. So we put all 980 who qualified. Temporarily down 979 because Tracy pulled up and realized they made a mistake. We've taken them out, we will put them back in once that mistake has been corrected. But that only represents about 4% of the world's universities. There's a huge number missing that. On to the subjects then. What subjects do we cover? Well, previously we covered six subjects physical sciences, life sciences, clinical and medical, social sciences arts and humanities, engineering and technology. For this year, we've split out two new subjects. So we've split out uh, business from social sciences, and we split out computer, well, IT, we call it computer sciences from engineering and technology. But if you're really interesting, interested, you can see how all of the subsidiary subjects uh, fit into those. When we're collecting data, by the way, one of the things we do have is a team who are on hand to support universities with their questions. And a good question is always, well, where are my staff really? You know, I have staff who do work, but actually they do a bit of work in biology and a bit, bit of work in physics. How do we count them? And we will do our best to help you understand how to present that data effectively. And as well as, as the main rankings, we also produced some subject rankings and some regional rankings. Uh, we produced some of the reputation data separately. And we started moving into specialised country rankings. But enough of that. I kind of had to give the background, it's in my contract. Now on to some of the data. What can we actually see from this? Because this is where it starts to get interesting. At least in my mind it does. Because that's what I'm really interested in. The rankings are okay, they're interesting, but the data that underlies them is far more interesting than the rankings themselves. So the first thing, and I apologise, the first slide here was put together by our um, journalist department, so they're rather better on imagery than they are necessarily on accuracy. However, they're nice and pretty. So these are number of universities by country in the rankings. And as we can see, um, actually, a lot of the world is now covered. Um, there's, you know, it doesn't, not surprising perhaps, there's a big hole in Africa. Um, that's also reflected, by the way, in terms of the proportion of world researchers. About 3% of all the world's academic researchers are in Africa. And that's uh, way smaller than any other continent. Um, Kazakhstan, by the way, nearly gets in, very nearly, maybe next year. Um, China, China is growing rapidly. We'll see some more of that when we look at Chinese data. You can see Australia apparently down there, uh, and the US. Well, let's look at the average of overall score here. Anyone here from New Zealand? One, a couple of people bravely in the back. They go, I'll put you on there as well. So, in terms of overall score, Australia is doing pretty well. Uh, one caution on the overall score, firstly at the top end, Singapore. Feel free to ignore Singapore. It has two universities. They're both very good universities, so it's a bit of a, uh, an outlier there. Also, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is in a bit of an interesting position. It is the one country from which we can get accurate data directly from the government. 
So as a result, every single UK university gets onto the list, whether they want to be on or not, um, and tends to depress their score slightly. Nevertheless, in terms of overall scores, um, generally speaking, Australia and New Zealand are doing pretty well. If you look at the teaching score, though, actually it's not quite such a good picture. Um, the United States is out there. The United States is out there largely by the huge amounts of money that their top institutions have. I cannot emphasize enough how much money the top US institutions have. Harvard has enough money in its endowment to pay the fees of every single student it will ever have. Ever. Until the death of the universe. Its endowment is that big. Its endowment is bigger than the economy of Belgium. Um, and at this rate, the economy of the UK as well. Um, <laughs> So, again, slightly wary of that. Um, but when we look at research, Australia and New Zealand are doing much better. Why is that? <coughs> well, you seem to put more emphasis on research. You have universities that are uh, in the British mold of universities. You are research-led universities that do teaching. Um, the United States are slightly less well in this area, and that's quite interesting. Industry income, you do okay in industry income, your industry aren't bad. Citations, I think you do quite well, although the, the gap there isn't, isn't very big. I'm going to go into some more detail in this in a second. And international outlook, top, really good. Again, you know, Singapore, Singapore has some particular issues which mean that it has to be entirely international. It's a small country. Uh, UAE, uh, that's accounted for by um, uh, a huge expat community in UAE. Uh, Switzerland, fairly obvious, but then we have New Zealand. But we can print this data in much more detail. So that was what the, uh, the uh, arts department of the magazine produced. These are my slides. These are my um, diagrams that are in our data product. And what we're looking at here are box and whiskers charts. Box and whiskers charts are a great way of helping to understand distributions. The line in the middle is the median value. If I list every university in order, that's the value of the university in the middle. The top and the bottom of the box represent the 25th percentile and 75th percentile, so 50% of all the universities are in that box. And then finally, we have the top and the bottom of the bars, which represent traditionally one and a half times the interquartile distance, or more accurately, the data point closest to one and a half times the interquartile distance. So you can think about this as looking down on those imaginary Gaussian distributions. Okay? That big box in the middle is like looking down through the hump, and then the tails head off to the uh, whiskers at either side. Ignore the dots for now. Focus on the boxes. This is the distribute. This is not uh, hypnotism, by the way. <laughs> You'll wake up in 30 minutes' time and all will happen. Um, this is the distribution of all the universities in the world university rankings this year. And you can see that for most of the distributions, oops, oops, let me show you every way there. Most of the distributions base roughly around somewhere near the 50% is the median, and then they have distributions going up and down from that. There are a couple of exceptions teaching and research reputation. Remember, I said those are inevitably exponential. Come on to why that is later on, but they have a very different distribution there. So if that's what the world looks like, let's look at Australia. And what can we see that's different from Australia, in Australia from the rest of the world? Well, the first thing to say is that 
Hyperstore academic staff is visibly better, much better. Citation impact is better. Um, and your international measures, not surprisingly more, I showed you before, are also far, far better. Um, but that's only moderately interesting, because the rest of the world also includes Australia and New Zealand, and includes a lot of places you wouldn't necessarily see as uh, relative for competition. What countries might be interesting to compare you to? Let's look at the US. You can flip backwards and forwards here. So. Right, what do you see that's different? Well, the first thing that we see, or to my mind, that leaps out to me is that the US has a much stronger international reputation than universities in Australia. And that is um, held up particularly by some of the top universities. Remember when I asked right at the beginning, what's the best university in the world? The most popular one in this room was Harvard. Quite clearly. And if I went out from the streets of Melbourne, or the streets of Shanghai, or the streets of London, pretty much anywhere, and ask people what the best university in the world is, <coughs> Harvard will win. Um, I don't quite know why, but it seems to be the case. Uh, in, not in this year's reputation survey, but in the previous years, we had a subsidiary question, which is, what is the best university in your region for uh, research? Every single region, in every single region, someone wrote down Harvard. <laughs> Which is worrying in a number of ways. Firstly, they don't know where Harvard is. And secondly, these are academics and they're not reading the rubric. It was quite clear that your region. So uh, Harvard has this huge presence. Um, and there's certainly the case that a lot of US institutions have that. Now, some of this is simply unfair. Their universities, particularly the top ones, tend to be older. You know, Harvard is years old, Oxford and Cambridge are way older than that. They just accrue reputation through that kind of inevitable aura. Everyone's heard. Nevertheless, it's there. What else do we see that's different? Remind it Australia, USA. Australia is beating the USA in terms of papers, academics, or rather, it's certainly uh, the distribution stretched upwards. <coughs> in terms of research income, fairly yeah, research income is a bit higher. But the big difference in terms of income is overall institutional income. Now, there are some words of caution here. I'm talking about the US as if it's a single system. The US is by no means a single system. In the US, you have the um, private not-for-profit universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, often with huge endowments, Stanford, incredibly wealthy colleges. Um, wants to have a vast amount of money just from their investments, never mind the, the fees they charge, which can be up to $50,000 per year. Now, in reality, very few people from inside the US pay $50,000 a year, because when you've got that much money, you can give them uh, discounts, but nevertheless, they have huge income. Then you have the state systems, the public not-for-profits. The public not-for-profits are in a very, very different position. They're largely state-funded, or at least they're traditionally happy, and that funding has been cut to the bone. Colleges like Berkeley, UC Berkeley, the whole UC system, Michigan, Ann Arbor, um, uh, Chapel Hill, uh, University of Maryland, Chapel Hill, really in difficult times at the moment. In fact, at our recent conference in, uh, in Berkeley, the, um, the president of Berkeley, Nick Dirks, was telling us that 20 years ago, the balance of money that came into Berkeley was 80% from the state, 20% from fees. It is completely reversed. Now, 80% from fees, 20% from the state. And that puts them in a really challenging position. But nevertheless, overall, they have more money. 
Where are they less good? Well, actually, they're slightly, uh, slightly less good in industry income to academic staff. And they're definitely worse when it comes to percentage of international staff, percentage of international collaboration, and portion uh, of international students. This does not mean that the UK and Australia can sit on our laurels and say, well, we have these great international connections, we're always going to be in that position. Because the challenge the US is facing, particularly the state sector, is with decreasing income, where can they go to get more money? And the answer is often international students. Who else is interesting out there? Well, the big country I think, that's a bit of a clue, the big country I think is really interesting, it's going to be increasingly interesting, is China. Because China, um, the, the advantage of being a command economy, and the government decides to do something, it kind of really decides to do something. And the kind of advantages that we tend to think we have over the Chinese education system are certainly being challenged. China is putting billions and billions of dollars into its universities. And it's doing it primarily around research. And it's not just the Chinese government, it's the Chinese regional governments as well. They want to be seen as being a good place for Chinese students to go. They don't want the best Chinese students to go off to the US or go to Australia or go to the UK. They want them to stay at home. If they do go off, they want them to come back to do their PhDs. And if they can't get them to do their PhDs, they can recruit them back afterwards to be their staff. And so when you look at um, things that we thought, you know, maybe think that um, we should have an advantage in. Well, industry income, China has a big advantage. Again, command economy. When the government says, industry actually will invest in that university, uh, it's a wise industry that decides that's a good idea. But if you look at research income, something that we might have thought we had a huge advantage on, and remember this is on purchase price parity basis, let's compare China with the US. The US is still higher, but it's not as high as you might expect. The difference isn't vast, and that difference is eroding year on year. China is still facing challenges around citations and around its internationalization, but it's also addressing those. Um, until recently, China had uh, some of the top universities in China basically offer their staff cash bonuses if they got papers in English language journals. And that was a huge incentive, but it is making a difference. Ten minutes. Right, a bit on reputation then. Because this is the one that probably causes the most challenges. So, before I start, here's how we do it. We use the LCA database because it's not just uh, a list of papers, it's also a list of published academics. Everyone who's active on Scopus would have an email address or LCA address. We randomly select authors, and we do it balanced by geography. So we use, know from the OECD roughly how many <coughs> research there are on each country, and we balance our output on that basis. Then, because some countries are, without wanting to uh, sound too harsh, the US are very keen on giving us their opinion. China, slightly less so. So what we do is after having tried to balance the output on output, if we get uh, disproportionately few responses from a particular country, we boost the responses from that country. So we think we've got a pretty good survey. We had 10,323 responders last year from across the world. And when we look at them, six universities consistently come top in the half of the last few years. And these are they, well, running now, Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Cambridge, Oxford, and Berkeley, Princeton in seventh. And sometimes uh, Phil Beatty-Myers refers to these as the super grounds. 
But some of the interesting features about the superpowers, firstly, they all receive a large number of votes from outside the home territory. Harvard receives more votes from Asia than it does from the USA now. Partly because there are more researchers in Asia than there are in the USA, so there are more voters. Nevertheless, it receives a huge chunk of support from outside its own country. And that's true of every single one of the super grand universities. And I'm glad this year to be able to do this in Australia without having to explain what on earth is the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> Welcome to the Eurovision Song Contest, by the way. I, I wish you luck that you never win it. Because <laughs> uh, it costs a huge amount of money, you have to put it on, etc. Et anyway, you all know the challenge of Eurovision, which is mysteriously the Danes always vote for the Swedes, the Swedes always vote for Norwegians, the Norwegians always vote for the Danes. Because okay? um, they're nice people. So the question here we were trying to ask ourselves is, is it the case that people just vote for universities in their own country? So on the uh, right-hand side there, I have, um, oops, I'll do one. Just looking at the ranking on reputation, top 100 universities, and the proportion of votes they get from within their own country. The different colors represent different continents. So now we do a bit more guessing. You can see at the bottom here, we have, um, a lot of blue dots. Any idea which continent the blue dots are? By the way, I'll tell you, the orange ones are Australia and New Zealand. Okay. So the answer is blue is not Australia or New Zealand. Uh, any idea of the light blue dots? Which continent do we think that is? Asia? Who said Asia? Sorry. <laughs> so you doubt it's not Antarctica as well, so you've got relatively few options <laughs> left. North America? North America? No. We're running out of options. <laughs> Europe found you correct by the process of elimination. <laughs> the blue dots are Europe. Most of Europe uh, seem to get a lot of votes from outside their own country, with the exception of these two. Any idea what country that might be? UK. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we hate Europe, but they don't necessarily hate us yet. We're working on this. Uh, it's not the UK. Think of a big power that might be slightly inward-looking? Russia. Russia. Absolutely. Those are Russia. Okay, so the blue dots are Europe. Who are the green dots? No, not Asia. North America. North America. You can kind of understand as well. North America is a big continent. Uh, you can actually vote a lot within the US without actually doing anything that's necessarily incorrect. So red is Asia. What about these odd ones, though? These red dots down here that seem to be getting a lot of support from outside their own country? Not Japan, no. Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Countries are inevitably outward looking because of where they are and their geopolitics. Also, have universities that are outward looking. Um, so, some interesting effects there. But we can also explore reputation by subject area. And we start to see the shape of different universities. So this is Harvard. Harvard, lots of reputation for clinical and health. A bit for arts and humanities, less engineering. MIT, on the other hand, a bit of engineering. Computer science institution. Stanford, kind of a bit computer science. It's at the bottom of Silicon Valley, you'd expect that. Cambridge, though, looks very, very different. Very different shape, arts and humanities. Interestingly enough, despite the amount of money they spent on the Judge Business School, not much of an impact on business and economics. So I'm going to show you Oxford. Show of hands, who thinks Oxford will look different to Cambridge? 
They want, yep, someone, one person thinks it's going to be different. Who thinks it's going to be the same as Cambridge? <laughs> <laughs> Who has learned enough about my questions not to stick their hand in the air? <laughs> Let's try that again. You can't sit on the fence. Paul Silver looks different to Cambridge. Looks the same as Cambridge. I think it looks the same as just about got it. That's interesting. A lot of the time, particularly in Europe, they say, oh, very different. Very different. But actually, very, very similar. The whole Oxford and Cambridge are different thing is just marketing nonsense put around by the universities of Oxford and Cambridge to distinguish themselves. And those two shades of blue, put them on a Facebook page, you'll not be able to spot the difference. They look black and gold. <laughs> and finally, Berkeley, which is perhaps the most rounded. Now, had I shown you an Asian university there, particularly a Chinese or Japanese university, we would have seen a very different shape. What we would have seen is a teardrop pointing pretty much straight out of engineering. And there is much more consistency amongst Asian universities than there is amongst universities in Western Europe, North America, and I suspect, although I haven't checked, Australia. The final one on this stage, how you look inside your own country is not always the same as the way you look outside of your country. This again is taken from one of our data products. Um, and the blue line is how, in this case, um, uh, this is Oxford, I think. That's how they look to people in the UK. The orange line is how they look to people outside the UK. So you can see there is a difference there. And sometimes the difference is very, very marked. And that's an interesting thing we're starting to find, that perception is, can be very different in your home country than it is internationally. Okay. Finally, and very briefly, a little bit about what we've been doing in America. Because everything I've talked about so far is around research. And the problem is that research is only one part of the university's mission. There are many other missions. However, one of the ones that has a lot of focus is teaching. The teaching mission. How can we understand if universities are good at teaching or not? Because certainly being a great research university doesn't guarantee it. Um, I can say that from personal experience. So we've recently launched a US college ranking in cooperation with the Wall Street Journal. We can't keep away from Mr. Murdoch that long. And the idea was really to try and find out which colleges were educating students. Not just educating better students, but educating students better. We limited it to colleges with over a thousand students. Now this is another difference with the US system. As well as the huge universities, they also have a lot of what are called liberal arts colleges, which typically have between 500 and a few thousand students. Much smaller, they will never appear in the research rankings. They focus on teaching teaching what they call the liberal arts. Uh, we didn't distinguish between public and private, uh, but we did want to make sure we were actually looking at bricks and mortars universities rather than distance learning only. And we built up a very different methodology. In this case, based on some initial work by um, the anagrammatic professors Biggs and Gibbs, um, who were working about 15 years apart, as far as I know, they don't know each other. Um, but they when they looked at um, the learning experience, particularly in the K through 12 area, they broke it down to these three areas, which you can broadly speaking think of as what goes in, what happens during education, and what you get out at the end of it. We adapted this slightly um, into three, four areas, resources, engagement, outcomes, and environment. And the methodology looks a bit different. For a start, we have more, different, more data sources. We have data that's coming directly from the US. Um, uh, government, iPads, and college scorecard. We were also doing some interesting things in the middle, which I don't have time to go into. Graduate salary VA and debt repayment VA, value added models. So you take a set of data about each college and about the students who go to the college, 
Are you trying to say, well, are they doing better than we would expect given the inputs? Mm. So it's a predictive model in there. We also have a number of measures here which directly ask students about their experience. Now, we don't just say, are you having a good time? Because that's probably of limited value. What we do instead is uh, we talk to students. Uh, we went out to originally collected approximately 1,300 institutions. In the end, we got adequate responses from around 1,000. Um, over 100,000 students uh, were asked questions, and we broke them down into four areas. Two around interaction. So interaction with faculty and inter interaction with other students, so collaborative learning. We asked them a question on recommendation. This is particularly important in the US where the fee structure is such that there's a lot of focus on are you getting good value? And we had um, four questions which we combined into engagement. So do you have opportunities to see how your learning can be practically applied? Uh, are you given time to reflect on this and make connections with the outside world? Are you effectively taught critical thinking? And are your classes challenging? We also asked, by the way, for some free text entry. Some of the stuff that came out of this. There was an inverse correlation, quite a strong inverse correlation, between research productivity and student engagement. The more focused universities are on research, the less good they are to engaging their students. In fact, I will pick on Harvard here, and it was notable that we looked at Harvard as the top of the Students at Harvard generally seem to have a horrible, horrible time. <laughs> but they put up with it. It's like four years in prison, you know you're going to come out stronger. <laughs> and with a great degree, that's going to set you up for the rest of your life. Nevertheless, there was this, this real thing, particularly in the, in the textual answers, that it was like, it's horrible, I really hate it, I've just got my two years to go, it's going to be fine, I can make it, I can be strong, please let me survive, etc. <laughs> I'm slightly exaggerating, but that's the idea. Um, some other interesting things that came up. Small colleges with very coherent student bodies did very well in some of these student-focused metrics. Um, Christian colleges, which there are a number in the US, and we think one of the reasons for that is they have a very consistent um, population going in with shared opinions, shared ideas, so it's a much more coherent student body. So it's the kind of thing you don't see in the bigger universities. Um, one other thing we did put in here before I show my final slide, which is we're going to see Harvard came top would be surprised if I hadn't accidentally finished up there. Um, we also put measures in for diversity, because we think diversity is really important. And that was um, quite contentious with some people in the US. We had to put special caveats in for what are called historically black colleges and universities. Uh, they were set up effectively to allow black students to study when segregation meant they couldn't get into the traditional universities. And some of them still have a 100% or 99% black student population. And we didn't want to penalise them for segregation. That seemed to be somewhat wrong. So we made a, a get out for them. Um, but anyway, we did this. This was published at the end of September uh, in the Wall Street Journal, and then slightly later on our own site. And our top five were Yale, Penn, Columbia, MIT, and Stanford. Harvard was not there. Actually, Harvard came to six, so it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, it was hopefully gave us a slightly different approach and gave us a way of looking at teaching. And my personal view is that that's going to become more and more important as we go on. Finding ways to adequately understand what's taking place in teaching and shed light on that area is probably more important to students than understanding what's going on in research. Because we know that most students are going to become researchers. 
We also know that the best research universities do not necessarily make for the best teaching universities. The challenge, of course, is that Harvard still has that cachet as the best known top university in the world, which means that students will want to go there and go through four years of hell because I've got a piece of paper at the end which will have Harvard written on it and that will be their passport. So it's a bit of a challenge. But with that, thank you for listening. Um, and we do have time for questions. It's been a pleasure talking to you.